Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have kind of a special type of an episode. We've got Brenner Newman out of Stevensville, Texas, in West Texas. And uh, Brenner, you can correct me uh, on that here in a minute. But we've got Chris Rowe of Rowe Hunting Resources. Chris has been a valued uh, podcast contributor and guest here on my podcast. And uh, Brenner's going to be doing some elk hunting in Colorado and had a bunch of elk questions. So I thought the best thing to do would be to get Chris on the phone and tag team some of these questions and try and bring as much value as we can. So Chris, uh, how you doing? I appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, good. Uh, this is It's perfect because this is one of those days where I just have to get a bunch of office stuff done. So I was sitting there working on some help content anyway so i think this will work perfect but no i've been doing well i haven't been fishing at all like someone else i know but uh <laughs> <laughs> you know uh our rivers chris we've had such uh we had such high uh, winter snowfall and, and cold spring here that uh to be honest with you the roaring port valley here where i'm at uh, kind of between glenwood and aspen here in colorado the roaring fork which normally i would have been fishing for a good month by now i I haven't even floated, and it's probably about this week, just about uh, time to start floating it. So I'm sure we're going to talk about that here in some future questions uh, that Brenner has. But it's great to have you on. I also want to let everybody know, uh, and, and Chris, have you talked briefly about it? I noticed on Instagram that uh, within the Row Hunting Resources Elk module, you have started uh, your own podcast. Uh, so tell, I'm excited about that. I'm happy for you. I'm, 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 uh, as a, as a elk module, uh, subscriber myself, it's, it's super sweet to see that, but tell the listeners a little bit about what you're doing. Yeah. So everybody, well, I guess just with the popularity of podcasts, a lot of people have started to really enjoy more of those long form type discussions where you can just kind of dive into issues and, and maybe have a little bit more off-the-cuff or a little bit more unscripted-style conversations. So we still are going to have the same structured videos in the Elk module and, and the rest of the website that we always have had, but I just figured, you know, there's some of these topics that just lend themselves to a little bit more of a, a free-form discussion. So we just kind of started adding that. It's going to still be, state right now, still going to stay housed in there. Uh, under the, the the website for now, but it just gives an opportunity to have a little bit more long-form discussion on some different topics. And the other, the reality, too, is it just makes it a lot easier for me because, you know, just like we've talked about it before, we can have a conversation, I can video it, I can record the audio, and I can post it, and I don't have to spend a lot of time editing stuff and, and you know, really working the video and, and making something visually. It, it could just be a, a, a discussion, record it, rock and roll, just get her done, post it, and, and just get it up there and get the content up there because with all the projects I've got going on here with all my habitat stuff that I'm doing, the deer stuff I'm doing, I'm just finding my schedule and my days are so dang tight, I just have failed to have as much time as I used to. So this just gives me an, another opportunity to get the content out there, talk to folks, get good information out there, but in a different format that people seem to enjoy. So, 
That's awesome. I look forward to um, seeing how that goes. I know, I know it will. People will really enjoy it. I've been enjoying your Instagram uh, live videos, where you know now on Instagram uh, we can we can do more than a minute long video. So you know a lot of your updates and you know just your good content and audio. I appreciate that. So I look forward to seeing uh, the, the progression of that. Um, Brenner, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you have the stage here and start asking questions, but I want you to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and Chris and I, so we can kind of get to know you, um, and then dive right into your questions and let's try and get through as many of them as we can. All right, that sounds perfect. Well, everybody, my name is Brenner Newman. I'm here from Dallas, Texas. I'm actually out here just west of Fort Worth today. Um, I've been in Stephenville. My girlfriend lives out here, and then also I have a deer lease just north of town, about 40, 45 miles north of here in a small town called Strawn. Um, so I was actually out here this weekend. It was my last weekend out there. I had to get everything moved out off the off the land. Um, I mean, actually, I've, I've done this, um, kind of just freed up my time to, to focus more on elk hunting. Um, I've been white, chasing whitetails my entire life, and, uh, and I absolutely love it. I st I'll still be doing that. Um, but just not as much as, you know, as I have been in the past. Like, I've uh, been trying to get into this elk hunting, and it's, it's really just, you know, it's changed, changed how I do a lot of things now. Um, and uh, I've been talking a lot to the hunting industry, like yourself, and asking you questions, and it's just awesome to be able to, you know, shoot, shoot you questions anytime and always get, you know, good feedback. Um, and, and I've been, you know, like I said, I've been talking to several different people, and, Always getting honest reviews and honest questions back or answers back has, has been a big help um, help to me, and so that's kind of kind of why I built this thing and, and shot you all these uh, shot you all these questions because uh, you know I'm just looking for more help, looking for more answers. So that's why I'm that here. sounds great, Brenner. Um, I got your list of questions this morning about well about 30 minutes ago, and I've had a chance just to briefly look over them, but. Uh, uh, feel free to just uh, dive in, and, and uh, Chris and I will do our best to answer answer these up the best we can. That sounds good. All right, well, let's start out with just, uh, you know, the, the, the gear questions. As, as far as, you know, going on an extended day elk hunt in September, um, as far as, you know, what gear will you be wearing and what gear will you be bringing with you as far as your bow and arrow setup, um, you know, your QE gear that you'll be wearing, obviously, and then your optics. Um, I feel like that would be a good place to start. Yeah, definitely. Just so I get a sense of what you're trying to tackle uh, in Colorado this year, I sense that you're just going to come out and do an over-the-counter uh, Colorado elk hunt, and you're going to do, when you say extended stay, you're going to stay, try and stay in the backcountry for a handful of days. Is that what you're, is that what you're going for? Yes, sir. I'll actually be heading out there August 30th, and I, I planned on staying out there for uh, till September 20th, September 23rd. I have, you know, that off. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of where my uh, my time frame is. Okay, fantastic. Well, I think Chris is going to be able to really bring uh, a lot of value on this particular uh, question. Uh, most of my elk hunting, uh, being a guide in Arizona for 20 years for elk, most of my guiding. Uh, was out of a tent camp or out of a travel trailer camp. Um, and, and Chris has done a, a fair share of that as well, but Chris has also done quite a bit of uh, backcountry extended stay, so I'm looking forward to, to hearing Chris's answer. As far as gear uh, that I could recommend for you, you, you mentioned in there the Kuyu lineup. 
Uh, I'm a big fan of the Tiburon pant, uh, which has the dot air technology, which on, you know, those warmer Colorado days, probably earlier in the season, uh, when you're going to be, you know, physically exerting yourself quite a bit, uh, you know, a pant that's uh, very breathable uh, to me with, with side vents would be good. Also, pants that you could look at would be the new Kutana pants, uh, potentially the attack pants, and potentially the pro pants. Um, if, if I had to choose one, I would probably go with the uh, Tiburon on the warmer days, and then I would probably lean towards the Kutana uh, maybe as the, the month wears on. I think one of the things that you have to think about is your rain gear. Uh, specifically, if you're talking about the Kuyu line, uh, I would look at the Chugach, which is, uh, you know, probably the, the lightest weight uh, rain gear out of the line uh, with the most durability. Uh, if you want to go the next step up of durability, you know, you could look at the Kutana uh, rain gear and then, of course, the heaviest, which I probably wouldn't recommend. I think it's probably a bit too uh, heavy for what you're talking about would be the Yukon, but I would probably go with the Chugach uh, or the Kutana. Now, as far as a shirt uh, for gear, I'm real high on the new 145 Merino hoodie. I really like that hoodie uh, for a couple reasons. One, protection a little bit from bugs buzzing around your ears. And two, uh, sun protection. And I guess three, uh, having that hood to have a little bit of concealment. Uh, I've been wearing it a lot this summer, hiking and fishing and such, and I really like that new edition of that uh, 145 Merino. If Merino next to skin isn't your uh, thing, then, you know, I would potentially look at, like, the 118 Peloton uh, synthetic shirt uh, from Kuyu. And then if you're talking mid-layers, you know, probably a Peloton 97, potentially a Peloton 240 uh, hoodie uh, would be a good thing. Um, you know, diving right into backpacks, the new Pro Pack 6000, uh, I really like from Kuyu. I've been wearing it this summer. Uh, you know, historically, I've been wearing an Ultra 7000 or an Icon Pro 7200. You know, depending on how far you're going to go, Brenner, Brenner, if you're going to have, you know, any support or, you know, anybody with you or if you're planning to just go, you know, four or five day stints and then come out. Um, you know, dictates probably the cubic inch of backpack uh, that you're taking. Uh, you know, I, I would also go with the Mountain Star two-person uh, tent. Uh, it's super light, uh, very durable, very user-friendly tent. Uh, and then I would consider taking trekking poles. Uh, you sound like a young guy, uh, but, you know, if you're going to be killing an elk and getting it in the backcountry, uh, you know, having the ability to have trekking poles and uh, be able to use those as support coming out, uh, you know, heavy. Uh, it's just going to save the wear and tear on your knees. Um, that, that's kind of what jumps out at me as far as bow. Um, I'm still shooting a, a Impulse, uh, Elite Impulse 34. Um, I shoot a, 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 a slider, a fixed pin slider sight. Uh, shooting um, gold tip arrows, I think they're 400 grain, right at 395 or 400 grain arrows. In uh, the last elk hunt I went on, I actually used the Gravedigger mechanical broadhead. So um, 
I, I, I know the arguments both between fixed and mechanical, and I just felt like I was shooting the mechanical broadhead and the arrow was flying so much better uh, that that was a better fit for me. Uh, so, Chris, why don't you talk a little bit about your gear, uh, and then if Brenner has any questions, uh, he can follow up with that. Yeah, well, the, let me ask Brenner real quick. Do you know what elevation you're going to be hunting at? Or, you know, yes, sir, anywhere from... Uh, yeah, I've been looking at around between really eight and eleven thousand, eight eight and eleven five. Um, starting out okay. for sure, it'll be it'll be around eighty five, between eighty five and nine. Okay, and how far in are you going? Um, so I'm actually I'll be hunting this a couple different ways. Uh, I'll be you know base camping, um, so camping from my truck, and as well as going in um, probably I won't ever go in more than three or four days at a time. I don't ever plan on you know staying okay. out there for five, six, seven nights. So. That's kind of where I'm at yeah. right now. Okay. Then, yeah, that, I mean, that helps. And, yeah, then the clothing, the, the only thing I'll, I'll add with the clothing is just just make sure your system allows you to layer. You know, there's going to be some mornings that are going to be really cold and probably damp with dew and everything else. And then middle of the part of the day and, and the afternoons are going to be hotter than the hubs of blue blazes. So you might, you're going to want to strip down. So have the ability on your clothing to be able to layer, and given the fact that you're going to be out there for that long, in in a kind of a, on a you know you're talking about high elevation for some of it, mid layer, mid elevation for a lot of it, you probably can have a lot more gear in your truck just to give you some versatility. You may not have to take it with you on a particular occasion, but if you're only going to go in for a couple days, it gives you the flexibility to bring more, have it in the truck, and then you can just come back out and, and just get new or different gear if you, if you feel that you need it. Um, the other thing, the other thing that Jay, I will say, uh, your boots, make sure you've got a set of boots that are going to work for you. Given the fact that you're talking about that elevation range, I don't think you're going to need a really heavy duty mountaineering boot, but you're going to need a boot that gives you a lot of good support that you're going to be able to walk some miles in on, you know, very terrain, steep terrain, and, and be comfortable and not get blisters and, and not wear your feet out. So make sure you spend your time on getting some boots now so that way they're ready to rock and roll as you get ready to go in. Um, and, Chris, Chris, could I add something to that? Um, Brenner, yeah. on those boots, and curious Chris's thoughts as well, it might not be bad to have two different boots so that if, you know, if you've yeah. worn worn a pair for a handful of days and they're you know a little bit wet inside you can go ahead and switch to a dry pair of boot let the other ones air out let them dry out you know i just think having two boots in a rotation uh is always good for your feet just to switch it up just a little bit and you know potentially having the ability to camp out of your truck and be able to mo move around and be mobile um when chris is talking about bringing that gear bring extra gear in your truck i think that's a great um, advice, but also I would put them in some sort of action packers or some sort of, uh, you know, pl plastic totes um, so that, you know, you can keep that stuff separate so the gear that you've used and that's dirty and stinky can, you know, you can keep in a certain tote uh, and you can kind of move the stuff around as you clean it and, and it also help you keep, uh, stay organized. Uh, one tip you might uh, throw in there, too, is when you get to the location where you're going to be hunting, you know, if there's pine trees or spruce trees or, or what have you, you can get a little of that and put it in those plastic totes and, 
um, I, I just feel like that always gives, you know, takes any sort of, you know, I already use unscented soap, but if you can put some of that natural smelling stuff in those totes, it helps. I know Chris does it some, too. Sorry, Chris. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, the only, the only other thing I was going to say is if you're going to be bouncing back and forth between the truck and, and going on, like, these just short excursions, uh, for your shelter, it's all it's it's up to you on what you want to do. But and we, we'll see what this fall does. These past couple of falls have had a lot of rain across Colorado in a lot of areas. I've probably worn my rain gear more these past two elk seasons than I have combined the rest. You know, my my previous life combined. So it's been wet these past couple of falls. So your rain gear is going to be important, but also your shelter in that. If you're, I think if you're if you're not going to be going, if you're going to be going, you know, miles and miles and miles back in somewhere, then you're going to want to choose a shelter that is going to be lightweight, just to just kind of save your back and, and not really blow you out. But if you're only going to go in a, a few miles, might uh, just just get yourself a good shelter that that is going to keep you dry and it's going to keep you comfortable. Everybody's going to have a little bit of a difference preference um you know sill nylon the floorless shelters and all that type of stuff is really great for weight saving but sill nylon for me is extremely loud and i'm a light sleeper and so it just i can't really do well in it so i just go ahead and carry a three season tent with me wherever i go if i, if I backpack in i'm gonna i will purposefully carry a little extra weight just because it's a quieter tent, it keeps me dry, it keeps the critters out, it keeps the bugs out, it just, I don't know, I prefer it, so it all depends on what you want to do, but if you're if you're going to only be going in a little ways for a few days at a time, I think you've got some flexibility on what shelters that you want to bring with you, but just make sure it's going to keep you dry, because if we get a wet fall again, that can get miserable real quick, but yeah, Jade's right, I, having multiple pair of boots goes a long way. Um, what is, what is hey, your Chris, current... Can I... Can, yeah. can I step in here for a second? Brenner, um, I'm going to have to have you pull that off of your truck phone and hold it up to your ear. We're getting some feedback that's um, not good for the recording. So just just pull it off and put it up to your ear uh, or on speaker, and, and the feedback won't be as bad. Yes, sir. Okay. Perfect. That's a lot better. Can you hear me better? Okay. Awesome. Yeah, so, what is, so you're a whitetail hunter now. What is your just a real broad strokes? I don't. I mean, I don't care about the brand of bow, but how much? What poundage are you using? What arrow length are you having? And what's your arrow weight? So I've actually. That's funny you ask. I'm shooting a uh, expedition excursion, 2018 bow. I'm shooting a. Uh, I, I met this guy um, Neil Emick actually, and on Facebook he's in Colorado Springs. He's he's um, he's actually an outfitter himself, and he's building my arrows for me right now. There's some elites. Um, and he's, I got some 125 grain, um, iron wheel broadheads. Arrow weight is 535, somewhere right around in there. Um, okay. and, uh, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now, but I, I'll be right. actually receiving those arrows this week. All right. So yeah, that's it. I mean, that's a good head in it. I mean, so you're going to be leaning more towards a heavier, that's, that's about what I'm running. So you're not going to have an issue with penetration. So, all right, that's what I want. That was the, the number one issue that I have. That I can see sometimes when whitetail hunters come out, a lot of times I'm ju literally just working on. I just got done doing a video on broadhead discussion. A lot of whitetail guys, I think, get themselves tripped up 
in the fact that they're they're normally trying to go for speed. They've got lightweight arrows, and they're throwing big honking um, expandables, and they end up running into issues with penetration. So if you're not going to deal, you, you've got a great, it, you're going to be just fine on that. So yes, sir. Okay, so as, uh, as far as um, another question, coming from lower elevations to higher elevations, you know, like coming from Iowa State, obviously, you know, what are some good ways to pre prepare for that? Um, before I answer that, Brenner, one thing I've uh, thought of, too, is Chris brings up a good point of, you know, it being pretty wet the last couple falls. I would have a pair of gaiters. Uh, a lot of the gaiters that I would be wearing would be for the hikes in and the hikes out and, um, you know, you, you may not necessarily be wearing them at the time you shoot your bull, but, you know, getting in and out of the country and doing a lot of your traversing up to your high country spots and what have you, if it's wet, uh, gators will go a long way in preventing moisture to get down in your boots. So that's something to think Agreed. about. Um, one thing you, you talk about, you know, you're coming from low elevation going to high elevation. And I don't think there's anything that you can really simulate that elevation. Um, but one thing I think you can do is, and Chris, I'm curious your thoughts on this. It's one thing to, you know, you know, go on hikes and go on walks and wear your backpack and what have you. But I think you, and, it, you know, at this point it may be a little too late because we're so close to season, but for those out there, uh, listening, you know, potentially for training for next year's season and something to have in the back of their mind is uh, when you're hunting this vertical country, in my opinion, your quads, your legs need to be very, very strong. So, you know, things like Stairmaster, things like, you know, doing, you know, squats and leg presses and getting those um, leg muscles in, in, in as good a shape and as strong as possible. I know when I went on the two doll sheep hunts last summer, the one thing I came back thinking was, yeah, I, I did a ton of hiking. I did a ton of hiking with a backpack. But, you know, some of that vertical country requires, you know, just one step, at, you know, one foot in front of the other, just one step at a time, but straight up. And that's where you really need the strength in your legs. Uh, as far as conditioning your lungs or conditioning yourself to get used to the altitude, I don't think there's a way to do that, um, you know, just to simulate that. So, you know, I would work out and be doing, you know, above and beyond running. I would be running. I would be hiking. I would be carrying your pack. I would be shooting with your pack. Um, and then if, if altitude is has been a problem for you, um, there are some supplements that, uh, you know, seem to work uh, some better than others. Uh, so if, that, if that's something you're worried about, I would look into some of those uh, potential supplements for altitude uh, sickness and uh, kind of be prepared for that. The other thing you can do is make sure you drink a lot of water because coming from a low altitude to a high altitude, you want to make sure you don't get dehydrated. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, no, I and I agree. I mean, you really can't do anything to, to simulate the elevation. All you can say, like you said, stay hydrated and whatever your lung capacity is now, I mean, always just try to max maximize your lung capacity and how much you can breathe. But um, I, I will I mean, I will second that you spend some time with your backpack hiking, if nothing else, because yes, and I and I agree with everything that Jay just said. But I think another part that some people get fatigued on is they're just not 
there's other muscles in your lower back and your your shoulders and neck. I mean, get spend some time in your backpack starting now, so you know how it fits, you know how it rides, you you've got you know how the weight feels, and you can start getting all of your muscles starting to condition on. Okay, I'm carrying this. You know, whether it's 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 50 pounds, 80 pounds, I vary it. I just basically roll a dice and and vary it depending on you know. So the day, so it's always kind of a little bit of random, so I don't get locked into the same weight every day. But um, yeah, spend some time in your backpack, and you just. I the one thing I do like the fact that what you said about where you're going to be. Um, I think it's going to be very important for you. And my recommendation, not knowing where you're going to be, where you're going to be hunting, my recommendation would be, if you have a variety of areas to choose from, when you get to Colorado, start low. Just at least for maybe that first, you know, five days or a week or whatever, below 10,000 feet. Let yourself kind of start to get acclimated a little bit. But if you just go from Texas and go straight in, you're like, I'm going to go camp at 11,000 feet and go in, man, you may end up sapping yourself a little bit quicker, and then the rest of your hunt is going to suffer. Get here, camp below 10,000 feet for a few days, start hiking, walking at below 10,000 feet, get your legs under you, and then make those excursions above 10,000 feet on your hunts or maybe camp a day or two. I think it will give you some longevity of your entire season and not set yourself up for failure right off the beginning. Yes, sir, absolutely. I think that's one of the things that hurt me last year. Is uh, we saw, I think we started way too high in elevation, and yeah, by the time we got there, we were. I mean, that last last year was the first time of any any of me and my friends, group of six of us, went out there, and um, you know, we made that brutal mistake of having heavy packs on, and uh, you know, going too far and uh, camping at. I think we camped at like ten five, almost at eleven, way too high. So, one of those mistakes that we definitely learned from last year. Nice. Well, sometimes yeah, that's how you learn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And one other thing, too, for people out there listening, uh, Brenner, you sound like a young guy, so it doesn't necessarily um, apply to you as much, but I think guys can overdo it, too, and be carrying too much weight, and they go into the season actually injured or hurt. So this is something with carrying weight, like if you, if you if you know it's almost August first now if you haven't carried a lot of weight I think it's almost too late to start you know throwing on fifty sixty seventy eighty pounds right now I might be doing twenty and thirty and just trying to get your body a little bit conditioned the last thing you want to do is go into it uh, go you know starting the season fatigued starting the season with any sorts of minor aches and pains and injuries that's just my personal opinion but. Uh, uh, what else you got, Brenner? Okay, so as far as e scouting goes, you know, um, you know, choosing choosing what units to hunt, and then I guess finding, um, you, know, you know, I guess where you're going to hunt. What are you looking for um, on Google Earth and XMap on XMaps? Chris, why don't you start with this one? <laughs> I was going to hope you start because that okay, that I'll, is a. That's I'll a, that's a giant, I mean, yeah, we can do it either way. It's a, that's a giant discussion. So go jump in, and then I'll, I'll, I'll okay. dovetail with you. So I think there's several resources out there. You mentioned Google Earth. You mentioned Onyx Maps. Uh, when it comes to both of those resources, 
what I like to do is I like to go on and find the areas that I want to hunt on Google Earth. I like to outline them. I like to highlight any roads, any trails. Then I like to go and highlight any potential, you know, uh, water sources. I like to highlight any potential, you know, high points or look for any rock piles or anything that I think would be a contour break where potentially could get out on, you know, out on some rocks and look across a canyon. Um, you know, I, I try and look for open areas. I try and look for meadows. Um, and I try and mark them. So then once I have a Google Earth map, and you may have four or five areas in Colorado that you want to bounce around to, and that's fine. Um, once I have that uh, built up in my Google Earth, then I like to uh, easily transfer those over to my Onyx map. So my, all my Google Earth scouting transfers over to my Onyx map, and then when it's on my Onyx Maps desktop, it automatically transfers to my Onyx uh, handheld uh, to the app on my phone. Um, you know, as far as different units and areas, uh, you know, I think the Go Hunt Insider, I think there's some really good info there on different units, uh, whether it be looking on the Insider and looking for uh, areas of service nearest gas station, nearest bow shops, nearest hotels, nearest, you know, uh, grocery stores, that kind of thing. Uh, I think also you can look at some of the success rates and, and draw odds and, and some of that stuff to get a feel. But then, you know, part of e-scouting too is I think um, not necessarily e-scouting, but talking to people that have hunted in particular areas, calling uh, forest service officers, or people with the United States government and the BLM or in the forest or, um, you know, game and fish and talking to them about, hey, you know, are there trailheads that, you know, are super, super popular? Are there trailheads that are not as popular as others? Um, are there places where you as a forest professional uh, know that a lot of people don't get into for one reason or another? And, um, you know, talking to people that have been there in, in those particular areas. And you might find a guy that works for the Forest Service and, you know, he says, man, I, I just never see people up in this basin and I, I, never, I never know why they're not there because I always see tons of elk when we're doing aerial surveys or, you know, uh, ground surveys or what have you. And all of a sudden you might find yourself, uh, you know, in a, in a great spot. So I'm getting some feedback. I don't know... Are you guys hearing it too? Like some wind yes, noise? Hmm. No, Chris, not, on, Chris? not on my end. Maybe it's me breathing in the phone. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Um, but, you know, that's, that's kind of what I would do when going to a new area. And then talking to locals, you know, when you're in town at Walmart, you see guys in camo or you see people, you know, don't, don't be afraid to say, hey, I'm going up in such and such basin and, you know, oh, yeah, I used to, you know, I used to go up there all the time. And you never know and just be friendly to people what kind of um, info. And, you know, a lot of people are going to tell you probably to piss off. Uh, but you never know when you run into a guy that's like, yeah, I don't, I don't archery elk hunt anymore, but I used to go all, you know, I know this whole state. And all of a sudden you run into a, a, a lifelong resource that's willing to basically tell you everything he knows. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, disregard that at all. Chris? 
my thoughts are if he uh, all all of that that Jay just said. Um, the other thing I'll say is if he are, are you okay? Are do you guys know where you're going right now? Are you guys going essentially back to where yes, you sir. were last year? Okay, all right. So you've already picked where you're going to go. So yeah, go hunt is nice. It's going to give you a lot of information in there, but if you've already settled on where you're going to go, then the next step for me is going to be kind of twofold. One, um, and I'll and I'm, I'll recommend this. It's, it's Hunt Data CD. I'm not affiliated with the company. I just I use their products every now and then, um, and a lot of their it's basically what they do is they take a lot of mapping data. And then they take the information from the Colorado Division of Wildlife or Wyoming Parks and Wildlife or whatever, and any you know they have the ability on their map that they'll put in where the traditional summer ranges are, um, where the traditional calving areas are, where the traditional winter ranges are. Now the Division of Wildlife on on Colorado Parks and Wildlife website, if you dig in there, you can find this information. Just the Hunt Data CD folks have put it in a in a in a format that is just it's stupidly simple. It can be on your phone, and it dovetails with Google Earth. It, it, they just did a great job with it. So Hunt Data CD, I'm going to go into my area wherever I want to wherever I want to explore hunting, and I'm going to pull up that, and I want to know where the summer range is, and I want to know where the calving areas are. Two reasons: one. As you move beginning of September, most of those bulls and those cows are going to be closer to their summer ranges. But as you move into September, all things being equal, a lot of times it's not uncommon to see those elk start making a move at least down towards some of that calving area, uh, some of those calving areas, just because of that, the way the habitat is and, and the juxtaposition of food, water, and cover. Cows like to calve there because it's safe, but they also like to spend oftentimes they like to spend the fall there as well. So I'm going to look at two, those two things on the map, and then I'm going to start picking Google Earth apart. Now, the one thing that I will say with Google Earth, it's great to see openings. It's great to see tree, you know, tree cover. Two things with Google Earth. Uh, one, the, I, the elevation range that you specified and I don't know if you're going to be hunting in places that have lodgepole pine or not, but if for anybody listening, if you're hunting in areas of lodgepole pine, one thing to always remember is if you see an opening in the forest canopy and it's steep ground, don't necessarily think that that's a grassy meadow that the elk are going to want to feed in. It very well could be an opening of just, what's called vaccinium or kinikinik or, you know, that's it. It, it's not really great forage. It's an opening, but it's not great forage. So for that elevation bracket that you listed, what I'm going to be focusing on with Google Earth is how many different types of habitat can I see in a given basin or a drainage? Am I seeing you know, dark green trees, am I seeing beetle kill trees, am I seeing light green trees, which might be more aspen. In, in Google Earth, if you go to the top, depending on what version you have, if you go to the top, a lot of times you're able to toggle through different dates on what imagery you're looking at. So you can literally go, you'll bring up the, the image, and maybe that image is from 2013, and it's from the summer, Okay. Well, if you toggle, you go up there and you find that 
it's got that little time symbol on it. If you click on that, it opens up, and you'll see these hash marks where there's other imagery photos there. If you click on them, you may see some. Here's one from February. Here's one from March. Here's one from September. You can get by doing that. You can choose different seasons on which that image was taken, and you can see what is deciduous trees like aspen versus pine versus where's the snow hitting versus. It gives you a much better picture of what's actually on that landscape. So I'm looking for maximum diversity of habitat. I want aspens. I want pines. I want open meadows. I want creek bottom areas. I want you know, I, as much as you can give me, I want maximum diversity because more than likely, if I can find that maximum diversity and it's near those summer ranges and it's near those calving areas, bam, my odds of finding elk are going to be much, much higher. Yes, sir. Well, that's, that's really good stuff right there. Wow. All right. Well, um, as far as hunting um hunting elk in you know early september to, to mid to late september you know where as far as tactics go how how are y'all uh, differing from um early september to late september well i think um starting out i think our moon uh i think it's on the 13th or 14th of the full moon is on the 13th or 14th 13th. of september this year yeah. uh to me that you know that that definitely plays a part in it. Um, I think Chris is going to tell you. You know, Chris, you've been hunting OTC Colorado for twenty years, twenty five years in a row. How long have you been hunting OTC Colorado? Ninety five. So what is that? Ninety five. So twenty four years. Twenty years. Okay. So Chris is going to be able to shed some light on the timing of the bugling and what have you. Uh, and can probably speak to the tactics really well. I think, from my perspective, early in September, Brenner, uh, you're going to have bulls, uh, lots of, of, of bulls, kind of young bulls still with cows. You'll have uh, bigger uh, bulls, you know, maybe not with the cows yet. Uh, you might have, you know, mature bull with a group of cows, and then you have three or four or five young bulls with a group of cows. Uh, you might even have some bulls on their own where they're not even with cows yet. So I think uh, Chris can talk about some calling strategies and tactics. Uh, but I would ask, you know, like, are you going into this if you can harvest a bull, it's a successful hunt, any bull? Is that your goal, Brenner? Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah my, my goal is to harvest a bull. Um, within, okay. yeah, 23 days, that, that's the, that is the goal. Now, that's not going to make the hunt successful or not. Yeah, that, that's that's the goal, but just going out there, yeah. being out there, and you know, learning. But in other words, if you get a legal bull uh, in front of you it. in bow range, you're going to kill it, and you're going to be tickled pink, and that will be a, you know, ultimate success would be having a great time, but also harvesting a bull, correct? Absolutely. Yes, sir. Okay, so... You know, the elevation that you chose, um, you're going to be kind of flirting with right there at above timberline. You said you might get to some 11,000-foot stuff, uh, but it sounds like for the most part you're going to be hunting kind of under the timberline. Uh, and so I would say that, you know, from my personal opinion, if you can go early 
and if there's places in the country that you hunted where you can glass a little bit and kind of observe for a few days and try and figure out, okay, what are the elk doing? Okay, where are the elk at? Okay, what kind of behavior are they exhibiting? Do they seem to be nosing around with cows? Do they seem to be bugling? You know, am I hearing any bugling? Um, you know, if it were me, I would try and have some areas where you can look across those canyons. A lot of times you hike up on one side and can look across the other. Um, and a lot of times in Colorado at the elevation you mentioned, sometimes there's not a ton of glassing. But if there is, and if you can think of spots where, where you were last year and say, man, if I could get up on that point and spend, you know, pitch your tent fairly close and spend a day or two and just try and get an eyeball, just try and get a sense of what's going on, I think that will help you in your plan of attack as to, you know, your calling strategy. I think as the, as the month wears on and the rut intensifies, I think you'll have a lot better chance of, you know, blind hiking up in the basins, doing a little calling or listening, and then trying to pursue bulls. I think the early season is when you might want to be looking around a little bit and saying, man, the last two mornings I've seen elk in that particular little meadow. Then you would try and position yourself over there in that country and because you've already observed them over there. Chris, I'll let you take the floor. Yeah, absolutely. If you have if you have the ability to glass, then absolutely. I don't. And you said you were going to get out there on the thirtieth, so you're getting there right before the season starts. So it doesn't sound like there's much time for you just to spend a couple of days before the season starts. Um, based on that elevation, Jay's right. There, you you might have some situations where you can glass, but you may not. I mean, if, if it's in if it's in timber and if it's just cover, then do the same thing that he's talked about, but maybe you just get yourself up on some listening points and just listen. Because this year, because we're, the season's starting so late this year, um, you very well may end up getting in a situation where they're bugling on opening day. And the thing is that makes this difficult, not knowing where you're going and not knowing what the hunting pressure that your area gets, this year, opening weekend, isn't that... It, wait, is it is it Labor Day? It's Labor Day weekend too, isn't it? Isn't it, is, is it Labor Day weekend opening weekend? Because it's I'm not even sure. I thought it was the last couple I, days of August. Well, yeah. it's well, it starts on August 31st this year. Yes, sir. It starts on August 31st. So Brenner, yeah, September. Brenner, so Monday, maybe you can tell Chris. Maybe just real fast, you can tell Chris if you kind of know the country you're going. What type of country is it? And then maybe Chris can pinpoint and hone in on exactly some things you need to do. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's southern Colorado. It, it's southern Colorado. I mean, I, I, okay. like what All type right. of country is it? Is it oak brush? Is it, is it you know, t tell them a little bit about the terrain, not where you're hunting. Just, just tell them, you know, what it looks like. It's, I mean, it's it's a nasty country. I'll be honest. There there is some you know you can get up high at some um, some point to kind of see down in some some meadows, um, but uh, and then there's some aspens mixed out uh, up up kind of in the higher country. But it's nothing. Um, and it's thick. It's nasty. And so glassing is very very. Um, okay. I don't know. I guess limited. Okay. Yeah, limited. Okay. Exactly limited. So it, not knowing what the hunter pressure looks like, it sounds. Uh, my guess is this year. Now I, I'm I'm the guy that I love going the first 
I, I like going the first week or two weeks of season because I do like catching the bulls before they get locked down with all their cows, per se. But this year, since season starts so late, we're probably going to end up being in a situation where a lot of those bulls have already made that pre-rut move, and they've already made a, a big move towards those cow-calf groups. And if you're in that elevation range anyway, you're, yeah, now it's going to be very, in my opinion, it's going to be very key on do you know where the summer range is? It, it, well, do, is there a defined summer range, and do you know where it is? Or is, are they just scattered across that whole thing? Because if they're scattered across the whole thing, at that point, it's just boot leather on the ground, taken apart, you know, terrain. And in that type of habitat, if it's that thick, then I'm going to either get myself to places where I can listen, or as I'm moving through, I'm going to be paying attention to trails. What sign am I seeing? What, is, what do the wallows look like? If I find wallows, is it out in the, is it a wallow out in the meadow? Is it beat the you know, beat up like crazy, or is it just doesn't look like it's been hit that much? Or am I finding little wallows in, deep in the timber that look like they're just just thrashed and, and destroyed? Okay, well, maybe I, I kind of slow down and, and pick that apart because there's some places, if it gets heavily hunted and there's a lot of hunter pressure in that area, it doesn't almost, it almost doesn't even matter what time of the season we're dealing with, they're going to be tight-lipped and they're not going to want to stay much. So at that point, you're just going to really want to focus on what sign you're seeing. Is it fresh? Is it consistent or not? You know what I mean? If, if you're going through there and yes, if sir. you've already hunted this area and you know where some of the bedding areas are, you already know where some of the wallows are, maybe that first weekend you just smoke in there and you just, just run and gun across the landscape checking area hunting as you're going but checking those key areas that you found before and then use the information you used from last year that you gathered from last season to just kind of focus where your initial efforts are um i think jay one of the next well or one of your other questions was about calling and this leads into it i always i i love to call i flat out love to call and so you can be if you know what you're doing and you you use strategic purposeful calling you absolutely can call in elk on opening weekend and if i was you in that type of terrain and elevation habitat stuff oh yeah i'm going to be hiking that i'm going to be getting myself in there i'm going to be going to the likely places where i think either the elk are feeding or where they're bedding i'm going to get in there i'm going to be listening i'm going to be calling i'm going to see and i'm just going to cover ground until I either get some responses, and I know the elk are there that want to play, or I'm, I run myself into where there's a lot of sign, and I know, okay, the elk are here. I just need to slow down and start picking it apart. Yes, sir. Yeah, for sure that. Yeah, that's good stuff. Um, so as far as the rainfall uh, from this year versus 2018, is uh, you know, elk behavior going to be um, a lot different? Um, since I guess it was more of a, of a dry season last year, and and uh, this year it looks like um, there's going to be a lot more water. Um, as far as elk behavior goes, what, what are going to be some of the differences? Go ahead, Chris. Well, you, I, I, I laugh, but, yeah, go listen to the uh, the third podcast on the website because that's what I just talked about. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's... It, it has the potential, um, I, but, but with that being said, I think 
you were depending based on the elevation bracket that you just outlined. I don't think you are going to see the differences that maybe some other. But if you if you're hunting in serious high country, alpine, tree line type scenarios, yes, I think you you've got to really pay attention. But I think from the elevation bracket that you have, I don't think you're going to see much of an issue, other than the fact that there's going to be grass and water everywhere, which means there's going to be elk. Elk have the ability to scatter themselves everywhere. So, yeah, yeah that, I, that was one thing I was going to add, Chris, is, you know, I've been hiking here uh, in the Roaring Fork Valley here for the last, you know, two and a half, three months. And most of my hiking, I start at 8,000 and I go to 11,000. I mean, I'm hiking in the exact uh, zone, uh, if you will, that, that Brenner's talking about hunting. And I can tell you early on, it was still cold and it didn't green up very fast. Uh, but in the last 30 days, I mean, it just looks like a tropical jungle. Now, I will tell you that our rains this summer... Uh, have not been that great, to be honest with you, but we had so much moisture in the winter and, and spring. You know, Aspen Mountain was open to skiing into the first week of June. Um, I mean, yeah. it was still cold. Uh, and the Ot 6 Ranch, I will tell you, got a lot of, uh, it, it's more in southern Colorado, and it got a lot of moisture, got a lot of snow, but it, until the last couple of days, it has hardly rained over there. The, the, the higher country, you know, the, the 9 to 10-5 country there at the Odd 6 Ranch looks great, but the lower country looks rough. Um, so as, as wet as it was in the winter and spring, I think we've had, a, a, you know, the opposite of a fairly dry summer so far. The monsoons, you know, coming down from northern Mexico and Arizona, you know, their the last few days have kind of struck up, but, you know, they got a late start. So I don't know if that helps you at all, Brenner, but uh, Chris is right. In that nine, ten thousand 10,000-foot, uh, I mean, the, the weeds and the grass and just all, it just looks like a jungle. So, um, and, and, you know, last year uh, we got some pretty good uh, summer rains, so I'm betting that it's going to have a real similar look. So, um, as far as behavior, Chris can talk about that. Well, yeah, and and one thing just to dovetail, Jay, what you just said is, and that's kind of where I was going to go, is without these rains, right now you can, act, because there's feed everywhere and you've got snow melt still, you know, some moisture still coming off of the high country, you might have these little trickle, little creeks and little runoff areas that are still going and it's, providing water in places where water may not linger if it really turns hot and dry. Meaning, if you if folks got out there and scouted now, and they're seeing elk all over the place, and there's little these little rivulets, little streams coming off the mountain, just understand, if it stays exactly, we it, these monsoons are, are running late, if it stays dry through August, a lot of those little creeks are going to start drying up, and those elk will move. So that's the other thing you're going to have to pay attention to, given the fact you're going to be there, you know, across, you know, three weeks. If you haven't filled your tag early, just pay attention to what your water is doing. If it starts drying up in other places, those elk are going to go somewhere else. So you need to be able to adapt and, and move with them. From a behavior standpoint, 
I don't think we have, um, I don't know your elk population down there, but all things considered, I have a feeling we've got, uh, I have that, we, I talk about that rethinking the rut discussion, and, and this year all the cows should, should be running, you know, healthy body weight to where they, they should be able to cycle in on time. Uh, the question is is whether or not there's conditions that might actually encourage some of those cows to cycle in estrus early. But, again, you're going early season. You're going to be there for three weeks. You've got such a wide-open window. You're going to catch some good activity somewhere in that window. All right? So I, it's, if you were saying I'm, I'm only going to spend one week, well, then it may be a little bit different. But since you're going to be there for three weeks, you've got flexibility to play and explore and if things start rocking and rolling early, great. Make you know, make hay while the sun's shining. But if it just kind of lingers and the elk aren't there early, but that's but you but you know the the terrain, you know the area, you know the elk are going to get there. Just have some patience, sit, listen, play the long game. And if it happens the second week or it happens the third week, great. But just keep an eye on the conditions and where the water is going and where the best feed is going, because the elk are going to end up following that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, okay. Um, as far as, you know, um, elk hunting mistakes, uh, I guess really for the newbies, um, and I'm, you know, everybody's, everyone's going to make mistakes, but as far as, like, some of the top mistakes you are seeing new hunters um, make, what uh, what are those? I'll start with that. Um Mistakes that hunters make, I think, are not being patient enough. I think they end up charging right into the middle of a situation and not really thinking it through and not having, you know, Chris talks about having a strategic calling plan, uh, you know, ha having a plan. I think a lot of uh, new hunters just kind of charge in, fix bayonets, and then they get in there and they don't really have a plan. Um, that's one thing, uh, not having enough patience to kind of let things, sometimes you need to let an elk get in an area or a bull get in an area where you can actually work with them. Uh, and then, uh, you know, another mistake is I don't think, uh, they, uh, new elk hunters realize how much of an importance the wind plays and how they need to structure their plan for the day around the wind and, you know, what the wind will be doing. Uh, and I think a lot of times in some of these high basins and such in Colorado, it doesn't take very long for you to muck that whole area up, and then you literally will have to move and switch areas. Um, the other thing is I, I don't think a lot of new hunters take into account where other people that don't really know what they're doing are going to be and also kind of muck up their hunting situation um and then you know i think another mistake is is people having expectations that are not realistic it sounds like brenner you went out last year sounds like you learned a lot sounds like you might have a little bit got it handed to you a bit which is great i know it probably sucked at the time but you're going to be that much more ahead going into this season. So taking those things that you learn and being able to capitalize on, you know, not making the mistakes that you made last year, I think is huge, but also 
figuring out kind of where people are going to come from, how they're going to plan and attack those elk as well, how you can use that to your benefit. Um, those are ones that just jump off at the top of my head. Chris, why don't you nail some down here? The ones that you, everything that you said, and I'll add two. Um, one is a shameless plug. Again, I, if you want, it, my, my opinion, I think a lot of new hunters get caught up in what they see on YouTube and full draw film tour and TV and everybody wants the sexy elk hunt where the bull is screaming at them and they're blowing a bugle and screaming at them and okay a lot of young or young hunters and I, newer hunters jump in on really aggressive style calling tactics in my opinion way too soon without understanding what they're doing, why they're doing it, and the effects that it's going to have. And so inadvertently, you, 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 you put the elk uh, at, on, a, on alert and on standby, and then after that, you're, you're just fighting it. And it's not, even in, it's not only just the hunters themselves, but all the other hunters that are out there as well. So my opinion, I love to call, but I always start low-key and build up in my intensity and aggression, you know, aggressiveness level, if you want to call it that, it just gives you room to, to play, and it, and it just, I think if you jump in on an aggressive strategy too soon, you can end up setting yourself up for failure, number one. Number two is I just, I see a lot of folks just not letting your calling setup work. I've got on the uh, on the strategies and action section uh, in the the um, elk module. I I've got videos in there that are an hour long, and the reason why I left them being an hour long is because it literally took an an hour for that elk to I, he was there. I was calling. I knew he was interested. It just took him an hour to finally work his way in. However, if I had just gotten up and charged in, like Jay was saying, if I just if I just kept move move move. He's going to nail me. He's standing there watching. He's going to nail you. And, and a lot of people, I think, don't let the setups work. If, you, if you're in a good spot, you've got a good setup. The wind is in your favor. The, bull, the elk are there. They're responding, and they're showing interest. And you are calling appropriately. Just have patience and let it work. It may be 30 minutes. It may be 45 minutes. It may be an hour. Just let them work. Use that stuff to your advantage. If you have the wind in your favor, if they're showing interest, you're in a good spot, don't feel the need to rush, especially you. You've got three weeks. You could yes. fart around for 10 days and then finally get serious if you wanted to. So don't, don't rush it. Let it unfold, especially if you're in a heavily hunted area where the elk are going to be on edge anyway. They might want to come in silent. So let them. Just don't blow them out of there. Yeah, and Brenner, another thing I, I would add to that is um, I, I think it just takes some bulls coming in for people to realize they're always, 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 always going to come in on the downwind side of the call that you've made. So 
And I say always the one time they're not, you're like, Jay's an idiot. That thing just came straight to me. But 99.9% of the time, the noise that they hear, they are going to swing on the downwind side of that because they're going to want to, you know, Chris has a great catchphrase, and I'll let him talk about it, but they're always going to come into that call with most of the time with caution, and they're going to be swinging trying to smell the sound that they heard. In other words, you're making the sound that you can predict if the wind is blowing from your left to your right, you can predict 99.9% .9 of the time they're going to come in on the right side. They're going to come on the downwind side of that call. Chris, explain to them why they're going to do that. Well, I agree, and I, I'll agree and I disagree for a little bit. There, if, yeah, if you're, if you're just using general calling and you're just throwing stuff out there, that's, number one, absolutely that's going to happen. If, you're, if you start using bugles, almost always, especially if you start using more aggressive sounding bugles, absolutely, they're, they're going to do that. Um, it's just in their best interest. You know, if, a, if an animal's responding, if, if something, if it sounds attractive, but it's just something that isn't just quite clicking correctly, it's just not quite right, then I talk about the see you first, hear you second, smell you third. From a communication standpoint, Smell is what the last thing they want to, that they're going to use. From a safety standpoint, it's going to be the first. So if, if they are on edge, if they think something's not right, oh, absolutely. You, you better be making sure that you're covering that downwind side. Now, the other thing I, I guess we didn't clarify, are you hunting by yourself or are you going to be out there with your buddy? It'll actually, I'll be, having a, I'll be out there by myself for a couple days, and then I got buddies that will be coming in and out. So I'll be okay, hunting so, um, both, both ways. Okay, so if you're calling and you're, I mean, if you're solo hunting, then yeah, you need to be definitely make sure that you're covering that downwind side. I, however, I would say if you if you understand what you're saying, how you're saying it, why you're saying it, as far as your calling strategies, I show it all the time. I can put them right straight, smack dab in front of me because if if you call in a manner that absolutely makes sense. You're saying the right things at the right time in the right cadence. They don't have any reason to suspect anything is wrong, especially if you're low-key. If you're being aggressive, that's a different story. But if you're being low-key, if, if, if I'm, like, for instance, I talk about a targeted strategy all the time. If I'm going to use Lost Muse and Assembly Muse, that is me talking to that one animal, and if I hit heavy on the Assembly Muse, that's just a single cow saying, I want you to come to me. Well, there's absolutely no reason in the world why that bull would think anything else other than to go, okay, well, I'm just going to come straight to you. If he's relaxed and calm, and you've done your part. But that's where, again, hunting public ground, you don't know what anybody else has been in there. So if you're in there running an aggressive strategy or you're just you know throwing cow calls out there just to see what sticks, that's going to raise, I mean, you might get some animals interested in moving your way but that's when they want to be cautious. That's when they're going to start swinging around downwind of you. So it all depends on how how good of a caller. Not let's just put it. Let me let me rephrase that. How how knowledgeable of a caller? There's a lot of good callers out there that are not very knowledgeable. Yes, sir. And they and I think you can be very knowledgeable in your calling and really not even blow a call that well and still be extremely effective. So it depends on how much of a how knowledgeable of a caller you are. And getting your setups right and calling strategically and calling with a purpose, start low-key, build up. 
I think you can avoid having those bulls swing around downwind, but you always, always anticipate it. It's, a, it's one of those plan B things where I'm going to set up to where he's going to come straight in at me, but if he doesn't and he wants to swing downwind, he's still going to eat an arrow. Yeah, I yes, was going to tell you, Brenner, as a general rule of thumb, this is my opinion, don't ever call downwind. Always project your call into the wind and bet that that animal is more than likely going to come downwind, but be prepared if he comes straight at you. If you call and project your sound downwind, that's going to put them even even further from you if they're trying to use a little bit of a buffer, 20, 30, 40 yards, to kind of get around that sound. If you're calling downwind, that's going to put them at 80 or 90 or 100 yards away. I like to call into the wind and let them swing on that sound, and it ends up swinging them pretty close where I end up having a, a good encounter at close distance. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. Well, uh, one, one last question. My computer actually just died. One last question is, um, you know, what determines success for, for, for you in the backcountry? Um, is it punching a time card or, or is, it, is it more, you know, what, what, what determines success for you all? Uh, for me, I think it's, it's individual. Everybody has their own reason for being out there. But for me, it's always, uh, it would be on any hunt, learning something, uh, trying to enjoy myself and not uh, get too caught up in being, you know, as intense and what have you as I am. The older I get, the more I try and tell myself to just enjoy it and have fun and uh, be able to learn something and, and take something away from the hunt rather than when I was younger. Uh, it seemed like it was all about uh, results. And the older I get, the more I realize that there's a lot more in life than, than results. Even though I still want to be successful in everything I do, uh, there's kind of a higher purpose in, in you being out there and enjoying you know, elk hunting or whatever hunt that, that you're going to be on. Absolutely. Chris? Yeah, yeah, for me, yeah, and Jay's right. Everybody's different, and quite honestly, everybody's different, and it's it's individual and it's personal, so I wouldn't even worry about comparing. Don't ever feel that you need to compare yourself with someone else. Who you know? Who cares? You're, you're out there as an individual doing your own thing. For me, it's the game. Did I, did I get to play the game? Like I said, I love to call. I, I, have I sat water holes? Have I sat, uh, you know, wallows and, and for ambush? I have, yeah, absolutely. Because um, I do want to, I do want to try to fill a tag. However, when in doubt, and Jay can very, Jay can confirm this one. I'm not the guy that sits up on the hill in glasses. I hate doing that. I'd rather be down in there mixing it up and and, and calling and and trying to make it happen. So, um, for me. I don't care if, I mean, I want to fill a tag. Everybody does. But even if I don't fill a tag, if, I, if I've been able to go out there and play the game, the chess match, can I get an elk? Can I find the elk? Can I call to them? Can I get them to do what, what I want them to do? Can I, can I call them in? If, if I've got some good call-ins, I've had some good interactions, and I've been able to, to mentally play that game, that chess match, that to me is a, is a good season. I, I can think back on some seasons where maybe I did not fill my tag or I, you know, at the end of my, my designated 
hunt. I shot a younger age class bull or whatever to put some meat in the freezer. I can look back on them and be like, man, that was an awesome hunt because I had those engagements. However, there's some other times as well where I filled the freezer, but it was just, I mean, it was, I, I, it was a long drag out season. And literally the last day that I was there was the last, it was the first opportunity at getting a bull and bam, bam, done. Yeah, it was successful. It was a fun hunt, but I still look back on it and like, man, it was just a long grind and I didn't get to play the game as much as I'd wanted to. So that's, that's what it is for me. I just enjoy that mental, that cerebral interaction between the animal and me. And can I get them to do what I want them to do? Yes, a printer. Let me shotgun a few, uh, if you have a few more minutes, let me shotgun you a few ideas, and Chris, feel free to chime in where, where you may. Do you have a few minutes, Printer? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, just some things, the random thoughts that are coming to my head. When you get set up and you're working on an elk and you've got an elk that you think a bull that is coming in, don't get yourself sandwiched in behind a bunch of brush. I would rather see you get set up in front of a clump of brush, let your camo do the work for you, stay still, kind of tilt your head down so, you know, your face isn't shining, tilt the, you know, the brim of your hat kind of down, and get in front of something. I see too many people, they get in a setup, and they start calling, and they're, they're locked in so much brush, and they have so much brush in front of them, even if a a bull comes out in that doorway, which Chris talks about all the time, you can't shoot that. So you, you've got to pick those areas where you're going to call those elk. And a lot of times that puts me being in front of a tree or in front of some brush and let my camo do the work for me. Don't move a whole lot. When they're coming in, if you stay really still and don't move, they will literally walk right by you. And I think a lot of people, they it takes them a bunch of, encounters to realize that and they get so slammed up in some brush that they're they can't even draw their bow anyway so before you even start calling you know you've got to pick those strategic areas that chris talks about with the doorway where those elk are going to come and they're going to stop in that spot make sure you can shoot that spot before you even start calling that's number one Number two, when you start calling to an elk, there's always that, you know, time when you think, golly, is he coming? Did he lose interest? Should I move towards him? I would highly encourage you to fight the urge to move towards them once you've become, began a calling sequence. Most of the time, especially on public land, they are going to be coming in with pretty much all of their senses on alert. So if you decide after five minutes of calling that he's not coming, I can't tell you how many times that I've walked straight into elk because I've been impatient. So those two things right there, and then when it comes down to the ultimate moment of truth where you're going to, you know, you've got a bull approaching, he's bugling, or maybe he's coming in silent, you hear him coming, make sure you're taking good deep breaths, make sure you're walking yourself through your checklist of, how you're going to draw your bow, when you're going to draw your bow, how you're going to control your nerves and pick your spot, where you're going to aim, and then ultimately making sure that you're not releasing that arrow unless everything is right. 
And then once everything is right, your all systems on go, you release your arrow, and then immediately, depending on, you know, where your arrow hit, you immediately want to really focus on where did I hit that bull? What is the bull doing? How good did I hit him? Do I need to follow up and make a second shot? Uh, a, a side note to a second shot, my opinion is if he's standing there and you have the ability to quietly knock an arrow, shoot that bull anywhere you can possibly shoot him if you know you've already hit him. Chris may disagree. My opinion is if you get second and third and fourth and fifth shots, you keep shooting. You take any. If you know you've hit a bull and he's standing there with his butt to you, I say shoot it right between, right up under his tail, and you just keep shooting until the bull's down. Yeah. Um, and then talk about when you release your arrow. Unless you see the bull fall yourself, where you see the bull, he wobbles, he goes down. I say. You don't do anything for 30 minutes no matter what. Even if you heard him crash just out of sight, you do not even go check for blood. You don't go find your arrow. You literally sit there and you give him 30 minutes minimum. Do not even move. Let that bull expire. Unless you see him, you know, in eyesight, dead, head down, he's for sure dead, give it a minimum of 30 minutes. Chris, shotgun him. Any other additional ideas, related or unrelated? Well, no, I, I think what you hit on the first thing, one of the first things you said there was about your setups. I, I can't tell you. I mean, you need to watch it. I mean, you watch the videos I've got. It, you, a lot of times in those strategies and action videos, I'm walking through the timber, and I just set up. I mean, there might not even be a tree around me. I mean, like, not even around me. And you, I'll have elk walking in 7, 10, 14 steps. They're, I mean, they're right. If you just let your camo, if you stay still, let your camo work, I'm, I am of the opinion, yes, always set up in front of something, let your camo work. But I really, I like standing. There's a lot of people that want to get down on their knees. Great point. The only, Great point. The, on, the only thing I don't like about getting down on your knees is, you can't move more than just what you can move around with your waist. And if you try to swing, you've got to swing your feet way around, and there's a lot more movement, a lot more noise. If you stand, you can rotate a lot more around your center axis without even having to move in your feet. But if you do move your feet, all you have to do is just move a little tiny bit, and it doesn't make a lot of movement, and it doesn't make a lot of noise. So don't. Yeah, a lot of people just want to get down on their knees to shoot. Ah, I am not. I am not that way. And quite honestly, you get down on your knees to shoot. Oftentimes, you end up more crap is in the way that you need to shoot through. So, I don't know. I like standing. Um, but yeah, I mean, all yeah, all those. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, that's well, great. That's great. And, and to add to that, Chris, um, the one of the benefits about standing is Brenner. You're a predator. So we all talk about standing still and being quiet and being still and doing all of that when an elk is coming in. There are times, and Chris can attest to this, there are times when a bull's coming in and he's behind some 
um, blue spruce or something where you know he's going to take three or four steps and he's not going to be able to see you and you have to move sidestep one or two steps or move forward or move backwards and you know that the time is right and you have to do it and it's do or die, if you're standing, you can take two or three steps in those moments when you know if that sucker comes out from behind that tree, I move two steps, I'm at full draw, and the bull is dead. So as much as I tell, you know, tell people be very, very still, you're there to kill. So if you, have, if you know you have to move and, you know, a step or two or four or five, and you, you're the one that it's your tag, and so you have to take the chance that getting into that other position is going to be much better. Now, I've seen people second-guessing themselves, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you, you know the direction he's coming, you can see where he's coming, and there's going to be a bunch of oak brush, and he's in plain view right now, but he's about to go behind, and if you can sidestep a half a step and draw your bow and be ready when he comes out, you have to have that predator instinct to be like, I'm going to kill you, sucker, and be willing to literally risk it all for one sidestep and be at full draw when he steps out. Chris, do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. and that, I mean, that's the thing. Is it, it allows you to stay much more mobile and, fl- and fluid and just, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ab- absolutely. I mean, you, and that's the thing. Is you can do that at full draw. I mean, you can come to full draw and you take one step, wow. You know what I mean? It just, yeah, it, people get themselves locked in, like what you said about being behind the brush or tucked into brush. You know, obviously, if you're sitting in a water hole, you know, we see this down in Arizona all the time. I mean, if you're sitting in a water hole, okay, then you're going to want to be brushed in because they're going to be coming in. And the same thing goes with a wallow. If you're going to hunt a wallow, I would argue don't get set up right smack dab on that wallow standing there because they're going to come in and most likely they're going to visually inspect the scenario around that wallow to make sure it's safe. They're going to know oftentimes that, hey, wait a minute, I don't remember seeing that thing standing, you know. So if you're going to hunt a wallow, stand off to the side of it, but I digress. If you're going to be hunting, you know, if you want to get yourself brushed in on a water hole or whatever, yes, brush yourself in. Leave yourself some plenty of room. But if you're running and gunning, no. Set up in front of it, let your camel work, and stay standing and stay, you know, just mo. And the other thing, too, is I talk about all the time, I hide behind my bow. I'll just have, you know, if that bull's coming, I'll have the arrow knocks release on the string. My bow, and almost almost my hand, I'll, I'll have the bow in front of my face, almost my hand in front of my face, hiding behind that bow, so to speak. So when I have to draw, all I have to do is just a smooth push-pull. The bow goes straight away from my face. My arm goes straight back. And there's very little movement that that animal is going to see. You'll see some guys, you know, they'll start the draw cycle from down low. They'll go up high. They do all these gyrations to get their bow back. You want to be able to pull that bow back nice and smooth. I hide, I stand, point that arrow at where that bull's coming from. So all I have to do is just push-pull straight back. That animal doesn't have a clue in the world that it's about to just eat it. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, that's all. Do you have any other questions? Well, yeah, I, I could ask you dozens more questions, but, I mean, that, that's, that's, a, that's a good... Any, any that are super important that you need to get get out? 
No, sir, not really. I mean, like I said, I, I think I covered all the all the main ones that I really wanted to talk about, um, and y'all did a great heck of a job answering answering all of them in, in, a, in a great detail as well. Um, so yeah, I'm super right super on. stoked to get out there in the field this year and uh, give it another try. I got a, a lot longer. Like I said, I'll be out there for three weeks this this uh, September. So. Um, right on, Eddie. Right we'll keep us posted on how it goes, and um, I appreciate you reaching out on Instagram. Encourage any of the other listeners out there if you have any questions in regards to any hunts coming up. I'm happy to do question and answer uh, with you on those. Uh, and Chris, as always, appreciate uh, bringing you in here and, and getting your wealth of knowledge. And uh, like I said, I'm excited about uh, some of the podcasts, uh, three episodes being uploaded into the Elk module. Uh, Chris, want to give you a chance to let listeners know how they can reach uh, you? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. No, it's always fun coming on here and, and chatting with you. But no, if, if, if folks want to some nice stuff and learn about it a little bit more. It's Roe Hunting Resources, R-O-E Hunting Resources, anywhere. It's Instagram, Facebook, uh, YouTube, or the website. There, It's all the same, Roe Hunting Resources. But on the website, yeah, we're adding a whole bunch of new stuff to it. So, yeah, if you want to understand behavior, vocalizations, communication, and how all that interplays and, and how to be a more efficient taller and I think, Hunter, then that's that's a great resource for you on the Elk module. And, yeah, Jay, I mean, it, I, we always do for you guys. Um, yeah, it's, it's, if they type in that, you know, the new new subscribers, just type in that Jay Scott podcast, all one word, and when they're checking out on it, it knocks 20% off, so it's a, it's a good deal. Right on. Well, Brenner, uh, hopefully you'll send us a picture with all your success uh, this this. Uh coming season and i appreciate you um following along and uh reaching out to us chris appreciate you coming on uh, god bless you both guys take care okay all right thank brother. thanks for having me again